Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Executive Pastor Dr. Tucker York. Would you come to the end of our series? In 2 Samuel, I encourage you to turn to chapter 24. David's life was tumultuous, glorious, tragic at times, but ultimately redemptive. His was a life well lived and beautifully, is beautifully captured in the pages of Scripture. Through David's many triumphs and defeats, we see God's righteousness. His redemptive purpose is to save his people from danger and ultimately from sin and death. To wrap up this series tonight, I pray that we might gain a heart of wisdom. We might learn and grow from these things that are written for our instruction. I will read 2 Samuel 24. I will skip a part in the middle uh, for uh, in summarized part of it, but please follow as I read. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. And the next few verses record how Joab and the men went through all throughout the region of Israel and Judah to number the fighting men. And picking up in verse 10. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let not me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. 
Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned, and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So David went up at God's, God's word as the Lord commanded. And when Arana looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arana went out and paid homage to the king and his, with his face to the ground. And Arana said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to, that, to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arana said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arana gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arana, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land. And the plague was averted from Israel. This is God's word. Father, we would ask this evening that the words in my mouth and the meditations of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. <clears throat> in chess, the end game is when but a few pieces are still left on the board and each opponent is making their final moves trying to secure a victory or perhaps avoid defeat by securing a stalemate. We come to the end of our series in the life of David and near to the end of David's life. His efforts to finish well towards the end, he finds that he is stumbling and bringing chastisement upon the nation of Israel. This man after God's own heart. Despite his many transgressions over his life, demonstrates, and through him God demonstrates that his mercy is much greater than all of our sins. That his redemptive purposes will eventually remove all of our sin forever. Tonight we follow a familiar pattern where we will look first at David's sin and then see God's judgment and mercy. And finally, we consider the redemption that we find in David's life that's ultimately fulfilled in his much greater son. Our passage opens with a startling account of God's anger being kindled against his people Israel And in that anger, God incites David to count the men of Israel and Judah, ordering a census conducted by the military. 
Now, this incident raises several questions. Why was God angry with Israel again? If God incites David, is David responsible for this sin? And why is this census sinful, at least in this case? Now, we are not certain why God's anger was kindled on this occasion, and perhaps ultimately it doesn't really matter. The scriptures don't tell us. We do know that God is not arbitrary in his anger. God is always just and right. But some scholars speculate that perhaps the people of Israel were being punished by God for following Absalom's coup, or perhaps Sheba's rebellion. We know from the witness of Scripture that idolatry was the Achilles heel of Israel that warranted their eventual exile among the Babylonians. God, in his wisdom, chooses to chastise and humble his people that they might repent of their sin, rid themselves of their idols, and return back to him. And God does this through his chosen agent, David, his anointed king. Now, insights into the will, how the will of God and the will of David are working in this situation really come to us when we compare with the parallel passage from 1 Chronicles 21. In that chapter of the Bible, we read that Satan stood against the people, inciting David to number them. God, in his sovereign and secret ways, as he carries out his will, he often does that through secondary means. And in this case, the enemy of our souls led David down this dark path, tempting him to which he succumbed, bringing judgment upon himself and God's people. God is not the author of evil. God is not tempted, nor does he tempt anyone, but each one of us are tempted when by our own evil desires we are dragged away and enticed, so says James. God tests us. Satan tempts us. God will not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear, but will always provide for us a way of escape, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 10. Yes, David could have and should have turned to God, crying out to him for help, and would have received aid to overcome this temptation, yet he did not. So why, why was this census sinful? Exodus chapter 30 makes provisions for a census in Israel, and we read that Moses once numbered the fighting men of Israel. Our nation conducts a census every 10 years by order of our Constitution that we might apportion the representatives from the states in Congress. But that was not David's design. Joab's opposition to this order. David's eventual conviction after the count comes in and God's judgment on it all indicate that pride was at 
the heart of the matter. David sought glory and self-reliance through the acquisition of this count. Despite his many military victories recently, he yet was still seeking after some measure of security or prowess or something to boast in, even if just in his own heart. It's also likely that David was neglecting an important stipulation also found in Exodus 30, where it was required when a census was done to pay a ransom for each man a half shekel in order to what? Avoid a plague. Right there in the law of Moses. A half a shekel a man. That would have been a small price to pay compared to the human lives lost in this pestilence. Now, Joab, who was no paragon of virtue, challenges David to look to the Lord, to the Lord himself who can add a hundredfold to the numbers of the ranks of Israel. It's Joab that asks, why does the king delight in this thing? David was delighting in the wrong thing. His delight was in numbers, in prowess, in worldly security. David forgot what he wrote in Psalm 20. Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. David's delight opened the door for the temptation to sin. We must ask ourselves, what is our delight? Perhaps like David, your delight also is in some measure of security. It's as if you can never have enough. Or perhaps your delight is in pleasure, which in this culture can be insatiable. There are lots of enjoyable delights this season and food and taste and sounds and smells, all wonderful blessings and good things, but there is something that is far greater. Scripture tells us that blessed are those whose delight is in the Lord. And when we delight ourselves in God, the joy of our salvation, we have a much greater resistance to the temptation to sin. I read also from Psalm 16 where David writes, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Well, Joab and his army completes the task, counting over one million valiant men ready for battle. And upon hearing their report, David's heart comes under conviction. And thankfully on this occasion, he needs no man of God to come confront him and show him his sin. He knows it in his heart. 
And David seeks the Lord. He confesses that he has sinned greatly. He asks the Lord to take away his iniquity. He recognizes his own foolishness. David's confession is like Jonah's prayer in the belly of the great fish. It's like Peter weeping at Jesus' glance. He is cut to the heart with a, a genuine brokenness and repentance. It's a, a model tenderness commendable to us all. All these great men sin greatly, but find great mercy and compassion at the foot of God's throne. They confess knowing that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, but they also know that God is just and that there are consequences for sin. Death entered this world because of sin. God does not lightly overlook sins or turn a blind eye to them. He forgives sin, but it comes with a cost. There is always a cost for sin. And so the Lord sends Gad, David's seer, to offer David three gut-wrenching options. Israel will bear the brunt for David's folly, suffering either a three years' famine, three months of fleeing from their foes, or three days of pestilence. And here David enters great distress. He cries out to God to punish him and his household and not these innocent sheep. Apparently, David is ignorant of God's anger against Israel. We notice that David does not directly pick one of the three options. He chooses, though, to fall into the hands of God for his mercy is great rather than fall into the hands of men. And so David appears to rule out the second option and perhaps prefers the shorter punishment. And though David dreads the wrath of God, he finds great consolation in God's mercy. Just a few moments ago, we sang, His mercy is more. What love could remember no wrongs we have done? Omniscient all-knowing, He counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Mercy means not getting what you deserve. Mercy is granted by someone who has power over you, who has some claim on you and is surrendering that right, that right to that claim, and no longer demands it of you. And yet, Mercy does not mean necessarily getting off scot-free as though it doesn't matter. It does matter. Our offenses are costly. A few years ago, I was engaged with 
a group of Muslims, and we were having a dialogue, and we, got, we were talking about Allah versus Yahweh. And in the Quran, they teach that Allah is merciful, is merciful towards sin and so forth. But what you find in Islam and the Quran is that Allah is not personal. He's not historical. There are no deeds to look to to find any sense of security as to why and how and when Allah would be merciful. Contrast Yahweh. The God who enters and engages with his people throughout history and time and space. God whose who's great and mighty acts throughout history have demonstrated his mercy on his people. But the God who requires sacrifice. And the one who was ultimately willing to pay the price to make the sacrifice that was necessary to secure his mercy to his people forever. There is a cost to be paid. There is judgment for sin. And in verses 15 and following, we see God's judgment. But in the midst of the judgment, I want you to see that in verses 14 to 16, one commentator writes, it's wrath surrounded by mercy. In verse 14, David appeals to God's mercy. And how does God respond in verse 15? He sends a pestilence that kills 70,000 men, 5% of David's fighting force. But then in verse 16, as the destroying angel is set to strike down Jerusalem, the Lord relents. He does not go through with it. He stays the hand of his angel. The Lord's punishment, though severe, he yet relents doing what he had planned to do. Not too long ago, my own wrath was stirred up by one of my children. And it was a great lesson on wrath and mercy on a much smaller scale than we find here in this passage with God and his people. I have a son who has a fetish for fires. He enjoys making them in the backyard, and for the most part, it's safe and under control in a fire pit that's out in the backyard, and my wife and I can keep an eye on it. But there was an occasion where my wife could hear the fire but couldn't see it. And she went around the house. The fire pit was awfully close to the house. And as she and him dealt with it immediately, I came home later in the evening to find that the siding was damaged and bowed out and exposure, exposing the uh, insulation to the elements. Let's just say that my anger was kindled. But God gave me grace to address my son under control. And I imagine all kinds of punishments. I imagine all kinds of things that I could do or say to him, things to try to get through to him to help him understand the, the, the damage of the house, the exposure to rain, how it could have been far worse, a threat to 
lives and livelihood. I anticipate a difficult repair and so on and so on. And we had a fruitful discussion. By God's grace, in the end, it was much easier to repair than I thought. But in that process, it got me thinking. And those of you who are country music fans may remember the old song by George Strait, Love Without End, Amen, the, the song of a father's love. And it came to my mind, and the Lord brought back my memories of some of my destructive ways. Destroying a boat and a car and the kindness and mercy of my own father giving me grace to engage with my own children. Lord, have mercy on me, the mothers and fathers everywhere. God gives David eyes to see the angel who is standing at the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite, a Canaanite inhabitant of Jerusalem. And God's mercy held back the angel's hand, but there was something else that was needed to extinguish the plague. The Lord sends Gad to David, ordering him to erect an altar right there on the threshing floor. David goes as commanded. Arana sees the king and his retinue coming and bows and pays homage to David and is surprised that the king is coming there to purchase his property, that he might make sacrifice and the plague averted from the people. Wouldn't it be great if we could just pay a fee or, or do some great deed to end the coronavirus? Or you know, to get rid of other plagues that afflict our society. The breakdown of the family, fatherlessness, drug addiction, deception, abortion, gender confusion, and other plagues that afflict our young people. You know, I'd pay a couple oxen to end some of these plagues, wouldn't you? Just, but just as we will likely have to deal with COVID for a long time. And these other variant plagues and social ills will require much patience and prayer and long loving service and sacrifice that we would cry out to God to deliver his people, the people who are afflicted with the consequences of self-absorption, rebellion, and idolatry. Notice that Arana is eager to offer his threshing floor to David, throwing in the oxen and the yoke for free. He wants to do his part to help end the plague. But David will not have it for free. He will not make offerings that cost him nothing. For that is not sacrifice. David buys a threshing floor, it says, for 50 shekels of silver, about $500. But 1 Corinthians 21 tells us that David pays 600 shekels of gold, apparently doing purchase the entire property. In today's dollars, that would be about $400,000. And it was there that David built an altar, made offerings. And graciously, the Lord responded, bringing an end to this destructive pestilence. 
So God's mercy stayed the hand of the destroying angel, yet there was a sacrifice necessary to remove iniquity and satisfy the wrath of God. But David's action here is more significant than merely stopping one plague in Israel's history. David purchased the land, the actual property, where they would eventually build and erect the temple constructed under David's son Solomon. David here is making a down payment on the sacrificial system whereby God's people's sins would get their atonement day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. It's at the temple that God's people would regularly see God's judgment and mercy coming together and offering a redemption purchased by the sacrifice of animals slain as a substitute because of the people's sin. And Israel would practice this continually over and over and year after year, generation after generation. And it would never be complete because the people never stopped sinning. The people would always risk suffering God's wrath unless there came a permanent solution to remove sin and iniquity forever. In fact, it would require a thousand years when finally the one would come in the likeness of sinful man, the son of David, the perfect high priest, who would make final satisfaction for sins. And he would come offering not the blood of bulls and lambs and goats, but his own blood to make atonement for the people. And he would be a righteous king who committed no act of folly that would afflict his people. Rather, he took upon himself the people's folly, bearing their burdens, and was pierced for their transgressions and crushed for their iniquities. And though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor so that we by his poverty might become rich. He came and he covered an enormous debt that far dwarfs the mounting debt of runaway government spending. Our passage reminds us that sin is only covered by sacrifice, but it's not our sacrifice, it's Christ for us ends by faith in Him. That not only are we reconciled to God, but we see grace to show mercy to others. Recently, my wife and daughter and I saw the film Sabina. It's the film in the Tortured for Christ series about Richard and Sabina Wormbrand, the founders of Voice of the Martyrs. The film begins in the 1930s Romania where Richard and Sabina are young, carefree, worldly, living the good life as practical atheists. But then Richard comes down with tuberculosis that almost cost him his life. 
And during a long recovery, he rethinks his life priorities. Richard converts from Judaism to Christianity. It takes Sabina a bit longer, but she eventually follows her husband. Richard becomes ordained as a Lutheran priest, and he and Sabina live in the city and love their neighbors and start growing and building up a little flock right as World War II is coming and bringing pressures and hardships, especially threats to the Jewish population of Romania as Romania becomes Nazized. And so at great risk, Richard and Sabina and their congregation helped many Jews to escape the concentration camps and certain death. And in that process, Richard and Sabina get arrested and are tortured at least three times and miraculously are released to continue their work. And they suffer something even worse that you need to see the film to believe yourself. But as we know from history, the tide of the war turned and the Russians began coming and driving out the Germans. And a remarkable transformation happens. As the Wormbrands, who had been helping the Jews to escape the Nazis, begin to help the Nazis, their enemies, to escape the onslaught of the coming Russians. We see in their lives mercy and action. Only the gospel can overcome our natural hatred. To show mercy to those who wrong us, oppress us, torture us, take away the people we love. The gospel is wrath wrapped in mercy. Jesus' end game, when it all seemed like defeat, turned the world upside down, checkmated sin and death by offering himself in the great exchange. The ultimate substitute, taking our place. In his place condemned, we stood, says the hymn. And so as we reflect upon this precious gift, the great and magnificent sacrifice of our Savior, may we enter into this week with true thanksgiving. Remembering that his grace is greater than all of our sins, and though our sins may be many, his mercy indeed is more. Let us pray. Our gracious and merciful God, we sometimes shudder to think the magnitude of our sin, the greatness of your holiness, and we marvel and wonder that you can receive us, that you are able to show us mercy because of the tremendous sacrifice that you have made through your one and only beloved Son. I pray that we would not be so proud to resist that mercy, but may we be humble to receive that mercy, and may it transform each and every one of us to be a people known 
by mercy to all those who, in whom we come in contact with. We bless you and we praise you and we pray that you would go with us this week. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.